0: Remembering Neil and a ray gun on Mars, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome to the travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. Rest in peace, Neil Armstrong, one of the first two humans to set foot on another world. I'll talk about his legacy with Emily Lockdawalla and Bill Nye in a moment. By the way, my What's Up conversation with Bruce Betts later today was recorded shortly before we learned of Neil's passing. We'll also talk with Roger Weens, principal investigator for ChemCam on Curiosity, the Mars Science Laboratory rover. The powerful laser-based instrument is zapping rocks and gathering great data on the Red Planet. Here are Emily and Bill. Folks, thank you for joining me for this uh, little special approach here. And giving up your regular segment so that we can uh, pay tribute to uh, this true hero, the first man to walk on the moon. Bill, I know you are old enough like me to actually remember watching this moment.
1: Oh, yeah, I was on my knees in the family living room to try to get as close as possible to the black and white television. And uh, the images, if you look at them even now, are quite blurry. But it had this sense. I, I mean, I was a kid. There was this intense optimism in those days and we had this sense that well of course he's gonna pull it off of course it's gonna work well and uh... when he uttered his words one small step for a man one giant leap for him mankind everybody was relieved. okay we got that over with now let's see what's it like on the moon let's see what it's like <laughs> emily you
0: are part of the following generation you don't have the direct memory of this uh, you you know it certainly by reputation, though. What has always been your impression of this uh, historic uh, time in human history?
2: Well, you know, I have to say that I didn't really appreciate how historic and important and world-changing it was until I became an adult. Uh, when I was a kid, this was something that happened when pictures were in black and white. Um, and so it was in that long ago history that didn't seem to have bearing on what I was doing today. Now I understand just how amazing an accomplishment it was, how difficult, how fast, um, and how much the humans really were in control of what was going on there. These these were not robotic spacecraft. These were humans using tools to land on another planet. And now I understand how amazing that was. Um, but I didn't really come to appreciate that until recently.
0: And, Bill, apparently this was a human who was particularly well-suited for this uh, this kind of challenge. Uh, yeah.
1: Well, I mean, everybody forgets. Well, maybe not. I mean, he was a test pilot, and the reason they hired test pilots for these jobs back then is there's just this thing where you might be spinning upside down. It's very athletic, and yet it's also engineering or systems, systems engineering where you have a series of block diagrams and you have to look at critical paths and what's, what system is most likely to work or most likely to fail. Meanwhile, you're being thrown around trying to make yourself sick. And so these people really had to keep their heads. This is the guy that flew the X-15 and bounced off the atmosphere hmm. and he had to circle back and forth apparently all over the state of California to land. He uh, hooked up with the Athena rocket booster and started to tumble. You and I would have just been throwing up. Our eyes would have come flying out of our skulls. But he kept his head and got the thing back under control. Then he landed the lunar research vehicle, lunar landing research vehicle. This, like, giant metal insect essentially blew up under him. And he parachuted down, and he went in, filled out the paperwork. (laughs) Giant uh, metal thing blew up. I almost got killed, your friend, Neil. And so he was really a fantastic pilot, and that's why he got that gig.
0: The right stuff.
1: Emily, what would you think about
0: the way the rest of his life went, how he lived his life? I mean, he wasn't a recluse, as some people like to think of him, but he didn't generally talk to, you know, people like me who wanted to record him.
2: Oh, I think that uh, he's he's a role model for behaving like that because he, he understood his... A unique place in history. He was certainly um, a pivotal person at a pivotal moment, but his job was to do something that would open up the world for other people to follow him and do the kinds of things that he did, and too much focus on what the one thing that he did that made him you know, so famous is it's looking back, it's not looking forward. And I think he was probably frustrated by um, too much looking back at history and not enough understanding what his accomplishments opened up for the rest of humanity to do after him. And I think that's, um, that's one of the most wonderful things about him. For many
1: of us uh, of my age, this was a high point technologically that for whatever reason spiritually – the United States has not gotten back to that place. I mean, after this came the Ford Pinto, the Chevy Vega, Vega disco clothes, uh, the president being impeached, getting involved in another couple of wars. I mean, it's, it's different now. I mean, now we have iPhones and the internet, and we do this interview electronically, but it's a different time now. I wonder what your perception is.
2: Well, I think that he certainly opened up the possibility for us to imagine humans in space. Looking back on what he accomplished, it is pretty amazing, but it was also at a time where if I had been a kid at that time, I would not have been able to imagine following his footsteps because I was a girl. Hmm. And at the time, there were nothing but men and white men doing these things, and so I feel very fortunate. Uh, to be in a generation where as a girl I can imagine actually following in the footsteps of people who accomplish great things now today it's difficult to imagine going to the moon because we haven't yet managed to repeat uh, the accomplishments of not just Armstrong and Aldrin and Collins but the people who sent them there the thousands or tens of thousands of people who had to work together on this massive project those kinds of massive projects I think that they created a great deal of innovation. They created a lot of national pride. And I feel like we are lacking something that we can be proud of, something positive that we can be proud of, that we can all drive together to accomplish. And I hope that as a nation we come up with something like that that we can do in the future and that this time uh, women and minorities will be allowed to participate.
0: Is this uh, somebody worthy of uh, veneration for the rest of history?
1: Well, sure. I mean, he's a historic figure. So is Charles Lindbergh and uh, Thomas Edison. And he did a fantastic job at the perfect time in history, and he changed the world. He changed what everybody in societies everywhere expects. As humans, we can accomplish great things. And he was the tip of that spear. I mean, this is an extraordinary time right now. The Curiosity rover just landed on Mars, and it's just the beginning. It may find evidence of life. I don't think we would have had that mission, the Mars Science Laboratory Curiosity mission, without Neil Armstrong or the next test pilot doing his job. I mean, he he changed the world. It's a fantastic thing. It's historic, historic time.
0: Emily Lakdawalla is the Planetary Society's senior editor and uh, planetary evangelist. Bill Nye is the CEO of the Planetary Society, as well as being the science guy, and uh, we will talk with them again next week. Coming up next, though, uh, another pioneer, or at least a pioneering instrument, Roger Weens will join us. He is the principal investigator for ChemCam on the Curiosity rover. (music) Coronation. That's the name given to the first rock to be zapped by the first ray gun on Mars, as far as we know. Fortunately, this laser has come in peace in search of knowledge, and it is already telling us more about that increasingly familiar planet. Planetary scientist Roger Weens of the Los Alamos National Laboratory is the very happy principal investigator for ChemCam. Roger, I can only try to tell you how thrilled I am that you have taken time out from zapping rocks to drive over here to the Planetary Society. Thanks for joining us on Planetary oh, it's Radio. It's my pleasure, Matt. So, how's it going? I guess uh, you've
3: moved on from coronation. You're, you're uh, zapping other rocks uh, nowadays? Yeah, I would. Well, uh, just in the mission in general, I would just say this is absolutely fabulous. It's uh, it, to me, it's unbelievable how just how well the mission is going. The fact that it landed safely, mm. uh, being a big one, and then uh, getting all the instruments unpacked, so to speak, we're partway through that, but it's going great so far. Well, you know, you had well over three thousand of us at Planet Fest a few weeks
0: ago, uh, at the Pasadena Center, who were. Uh, maybe not quite as ecstatic as those people we were watching in the webcast or you scientists were to know that your instruments were, were down on the surface of Mars. Yeah, it was a pretty deafening roar in the science <laughs> room, too. <Yeah. laughs> but And I hear you've had, what, a champagne celebration uh, following
3: this first uh, zapping of this this rock coronation? That's right. Over the weekend, uh, last week, so a little over a week ago uh, from when you're hearing this, uh, we uh, celebrated our first uh, shots on Mars, uh, the first time a laser this powerful has been on Mars and shooting at rocks to get their composition. So uh, when we reported that in the, in the, in the SOG, we, we brought some champagne.
0: We've had the best time for more than a year out of this place, and of course we're not alone, talking about how, you know, finally Earthlings have sent a ray gun to Mars. Uh, and uh, we're going to continue to make that joke, so please, you know, forgive us. But- yeah, I, I've seen something about an unprovoked <laughs> attack, but uh, let's, let's ignore that. <laughs> let's talk about the real results. Uh, you got, I saw on the press conference a few days before our, uh, our conversation here today, this terrific graph that you had that shows us ChemCam is doing exactly what it's supposed to do.
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, we got the first spectrum, and it, I mean, in some ways, it was unbelievable how much it looked like in our lab. Uh, you know, it's just uh, there's, there's nothing uh, wrong, and there was nothing uh, unusual about the way the instrument was working, except actually we were getting a little more signal than we were expecting, huh. and we actually slightly saturated one one peak, and, and that's not a real issue. More signal is always a nice thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, uh, So, uh, yeah, it was it was exciting to see this thing come out so clearly.
0: And you've already had some results, I guess, that have raised some eyebrows. Uh, And I'm thinking in particular of your comment about uh, this finding of what hydrogen and magnesium, which was
3: that unexpected? Uh, we didn't know what to expect exactly mm. on the surface of, of rocks and so on. Uh, as I did mention there, we've, we've seen this on everything we've shot, including our calibration targets on the rover. So the question is whether this is uh, perhaps just a little of the signature of dust. And if so, uh, you know, we might get it more uh, stronger when we get away from the, the area of the landing where we think a lot of the dust was really blown away. Remind us of how
0: ChemCam works. This is quite an energetic, though v- 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 short-lived little
3: pulse of energy, right? Yeah, so uh, the the technique is called LIBS, that's Laser Induced Breakdown Spectroscopy. And it works by uh, firing a, a laser pulse and focusing it down on a small spot. The laser pulse itself in the case of ChemCam is, is five billionths of a second, five nanoseconds long. And uh, in that time, uh, we pump more than a megawatt uh, Mm. into the sample, and it's a space smaller than a square millimeter, so that's a very high power density. And uh, with that uh, intense flux of photons, uh, it excites the uh, the surface materials that are ablated in, uh, in very high temperature states. And of course, anything that's that hot will, uh, will, will emit light. It's, uh, it's like a flame or a spark, uh, whatever you want to call it. It's really a little ball of plasma. The images that are before and after, they're not really during. Uh, mm. It's possible that, uh, that maybe an, a different camera could, could capture a, a plasma in, in, in the act later That'd on. That would be a fast but, shutter, uh, wouldn't it? Yeah. But uh, anyway, so, so we, the ChemCam also has this what's called a remote microimager. So it has a resolution a bit about equal to the, the MassCam 100, which is the highest resolution mm-hmm. ever to be on Mars. And so this gives us context images of the, of the, of the spots or locations that we're, that we're shooting. And some of these images, I mean, they cover a very small space because they're looking at your target area, but they're very detailed. Yeah. And uh, yeah, since <laughs> since you mentioned it covers a small space, we we're trying to get some portraits of people before we before we <laughs> launch the thing, and uh, and we had to use a, a mirror 30 feet away so that we could uh, we could get this uh, get a person's face on there. But uh, no kidding, yeah, the details that we're seeing on, on rocks and on, on out, uh, you know on whatever we're shooting at is is is, is amazing. You can get things uh, well just to put it in a human perspective, you could see a human hair seven feet away which Uh. uh, is is not what your eye can see.
0: Not bad, yeah, not bad. Better than a lot of field geologists. I bet. They wish they had that kind of resolution, (laughs) I guess, with their naked eyes. You mentioned something very briefly, which came up on last week's show. Emily Lakdawalla brought it up, which is that you have these calibration targets. You're really firing two of these
3: pulses each time you hit a rock on the Martian surface. Is that correct? In general, we have a uh, a set of calibration targets. That's ten targets on the back of the rover, and we can go to them at any time and, uh, and, and shoot. So there's several reasons why we use calibration targets. One is to verify or ground truth uh, what we get on Mars is the same as what we shot on Earth. And that's the only way we can do that is to take something to Mars that we've already shot. So that's, uh, that was the purpose of that. There's also some diagnostics we can do by hitting these targets, hmm. uh, check the laser uh, uh, performance, and also uh, check uh, basically um, the wavelength calibration, and so we've been working on that. And we need that those those sensitive calibrations before we uh, before we can really give uh, accurate numbers on the on the surface of on the composition of Mars
0: and they work very much like the photo calibration target which of course we're thrilled with here because that's the 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 sundial that doubles on as a sundial as yeah. our boss Bill and I loves
3: yeah that's right and I, maybe another detail is when, when we fire libs the laser is pulsing and usually sh- we'll shoot something like 30 laser shots on a single location mm. uh, that way we, we We get better statistics. It also tells us what's happening as you go burrow into the rock just a little ways. And that's how we could get this, uh, see this hydrogen and magnesium on the very first shot.
0: More about ChemCam from Roger Weens is just a minute away. This is Planetary Radio. I'm Robert Picardo. I traveled across the galaxy as the doctor in Star Trek Voyager. Then I joined the Planetary Society to become part of the real adventure of space exploration. The Society fights for missions that unveil the secrets of the solar system. It searches for other intelligences in the universe, and it built the first solar sail. It also shares the wonder through this radio show, its website, and other exciting projects that reach around the globe. I'm proud to be part of this greatest of all voyages, and I hope you'll consider
3: joining us.
2: You can learn more about the Planetary Society at our website, planetary.org slash radio, or by calling 1-800-9-WORLDS. Planetary Radio listeners who aren't yet members can join and receive a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Our nearly 100,000 members receive the internationally acclaimed Planetary Report magazine. That's planetary.org slash radio. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds.
0: Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. What could be cooler? A powerful laser is crawling across Mars, zapping rocks and telling us what they are made of this is what we humans do. Roger Weens is the justifiably proud principal investigator for ChemCam, one of the suite of marvelous instruments on Curiosity, the Mars Science Laboratory rover. And I want to mention that that noise people may be hearing is not ChemCam in operation outside, it's a leaf blower outside the Planetary (laughs) Society headquarters, a poorly timed leaf blower. How do you decide which rocks to target? I had this this weird fantasy of other scientists on the Curiosity team and around the world coming to you with bribes, you know, offering you mocha cappuccinos or something, and saying, okay, how about this one over here? This one is really valuable.
3: No, we do it without without bribes, and uh, so there's a, there's a large team of, of scientists at, at Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and later we'll do this remotely uh, by phone and whatever. But uh, it's uh, basically done by committee, and so there are, there are priorities set by, uh, by the sort of the leads of the mission, and then that flows down into uh, what's called science theme groups, and these science theme groups are able to decide what is the most interesting thing. That way you get a number of brains and a number of eyes on images and uh, a number of thoughts that go into this, and it's it's uh, much better Product overall than if you had just one or two people uh, say you know putting putting in requests. I got to think though that the demand
0: is probably going to outstrip your ability to to satisfy it. That because uh, you can only zap that many so many rocks, especially as Curiosity crawls across the surface.
3: Yeah, and so uh, Matt, there's there's uh, of course uh, lots of competition for the time of the rover. There's ten instruments, mm. and so we have to uh, share. Things get worked out, and there's there's horse trades sometimes. There's uh, there, there's, there's negotiations going on all the time. It's, it's, but it's fun. This instrument has a, a very
0: strong international element to it. You worked, uh, I guess, particularly with a, a French
3: agency. That's right. Uh, so back in 2001, uh, I talked with Sylvester Maurice, who had done a postdoc at Los Alamos where I am, and uh, and had gone back to France. And I suggested that we perha- potentially collaborate on this uh, on this. P- potential new project. We didn't know what mission it was going to go on, and the French got all excited about this technique, LIBS, and, uh, and they started actually developing the laser at that time, which uh, eventually became the laser for ChemCam. Chem. Mm. So really, this is a 50-50 collaboration, France and the U.S. Uh, I'm the PI, but it's, it's really a, a very equitable uh, distribution of work and uh, fun and science, and uh, it's been a lot of fun actually working together that way. Very enriching.
0: And this is an instrument which uh, there was a time when it looked like it might not
3: have made it to Mars to do this amazing work. It, it, it was, uh, there was a struggle. That's true. Uh, there was a time when, uh, when we did go through a, uh, a challenging uh, uh, time. Basically, we, we, were, uh, we, were, we thought we would get kicked off the mission. Mm. And, uh, which would have been tragic. Yes, and the other thing is how does a rover know what it should be analyzing other than, than getting pictures and some remote chemical compositions. Mm-hmm. If you don't have that you're really in the blind because deploying the arm is a fairly energy intensive thing and that, that takes a good part of a day if not all day in terms of the energy budget. So uh, you just can't analyze everything um, but but uh, the remote, sen- remote sensing instruments are the things that are really supposed to to look around and, and tell you uh, what is the most interesting things to spend the most of uh, the sh- the larger share of your time on the big investment there is you can think of 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 the whole analysis strategy as a funnel perhaps At the top end, what gets scrutinized uh, over a large area is the uh, satellite imaging, of course. Then you go down to the mast cam and the the, the imaging from the rover, which can see up to uh, really 100 meters and more Mm. in terms of things that are nearby, as well as, of course, imaging things farther away, uh, like the mountain, Mount Sharp. But then you come to what can you learn about compositionally. uh, So then you come to uh, ChemCam and see what, what, are, what are the compositions nearby, uh, then fewer samples are going to get analyzed by the arm and get looked at by the microimager on the arm, Molly. And then even fewer samples are going to get analyzed by the laboratory instruments that are sitting inside the rover. Hmm. We want to invest the best, you could say, by finding the best samples for those, uh, those techniques that take longer, which are the ones inside the rover.
0: I got to follow up on one other question about the ChemCam technology, which you and I talked about after emerging from a cave uh, near Carlsbad Caverns uh, yeah. last November, which was such a blast. Earthly uh, applications for this and, and the possibility that ChemCam
3: technology might be adapted for field geologists uh, right here on this planet. Yeah, there are a number of companies that are, that are now uh, selling uh, LIBS instruments, uh, which is what ChemCam uses. There are some trade-offs. For example, X-ray fluorescence is a good technique to use in general, but if you're looking for the light elements like carbon or hydrogen Mm. or nitrogen, um, things like that, uh, LIBS will be able to do those, whereas XRF cannot. So there are are some specific niche advantages. It's being used uh, in Los Alamos for things like carbon sequestration, looking at carbon in soils, uh, as well as some other uh, uh, non-proliferation opportunities.
0: So back to Mars. Where are you headed with your laser next?
3: Have there, are there more targets lined up? Just in general, the mission, uh, as announced by John Grotzinger last week, is, is headed towards a place called Glenelg, and it's a uh, junction of three different terrains, uh, and so we're excited to, to try to find out what, what those things mean. And we'll be zapping along the way as the, as the rover starts, uh, starts uh, getting the wind behind it and, and moving along. Uh, we're hoping to make more measurements along the way. Mars has had a big role in your life for a long time. I think back
0: to uh, a telescope that you designed a very long time ago that you built with uh, your brother out there in the Midwest. And and first uh, turned it on Mars.
3: Yes, Matt. Uh, the uh, the first uh, in-orbit pictures of Mars back in 1971 were sort of a, a, a stepping point for us. Uh, we had built a telescope for that close approach of Mars, a six-inch telescope. We didn't even get the tube in time, so we had it on a plywood board uh, instead of the tube, and put it, mounted it on a fence post. And uh, we got great sketches of Mars from that, and, and that was kind of a Uh, a first for me to really see Mars up close and personal.
0: You could not have dreamt at that point that you would one day be uh, roving across Mars with a device uh, that would actually be digging into uh, the surface of the red planet.
3: Absolutely no idea. That that would be out of my mind. Roger,
0: I've got to let you get back to JPL. You're due back over there uh, for more of this uh, mission. We've got to make more measurements. Where yeah. uh, the team is uh, is chomping at the bit. Thank you so much for coming by. It is just a blast to talk to you, uh, no pun intended. It's great to talk to a scientist who gets to use the word zap as part of his uh, scientific investigations. Well, Thanks. My pleasure, Matt. Roger yeah. Weens is the ChemCam Principal Investigator on Curiosity, the Mars Science Laboratory rover. He's currently working on a book that should be out in early 2013 that will talk about some of these experiences, beginning in that Midwestern backyard with his brother and leading up to these amazing successes with ChemCam on Curiosity. He is a scientist, a planetary scientist, physicist at the Los Alamos National Laboratory and also had a big role on the Genesis Solar Wind Sample Return Mission. with Bruce Betts for uh, another weekly edition of What's Up. Welcome. Thank you. Take a look at this bumper sticker.
4: My other vehicles zaps rocks on Mars. Yeah. Gosh, Matt, where'd you get that?
0: <laughs> Roger Weens had a briefcase full of these, and he kindly <laughs> left us a few. And uh, we're going to give this one away as, uh, during the contest today, if that's okay with you. Yes. Oh, please do. They'll throw in a shirt or hey, a Hey, d-
4: did as you well. see my my tweet that I thought was so funny? No, no one hardly retweeted it. So apparently, other people disagreed. So I'm going to try again <laughs> on Planetary Radio. Give it a shot. Hokey religions and ancient weapons are no substitute for a good chemcam laser. <laughs> uh, thank you, thank you. I knew you. That's good. Give me a chuckle.
0: That's very good. All right. Thank you. I feel much better. <laughs> this fully operational ChemCam.
4: No, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's cool. We're zapping rocks on Mars. I've, I've watched the development for a long time of ChemCam, and it's it's working, and it's cool. All right. Let's talk about what's up in the night sky. You can still see Mars your very self in the evening over in the low in the west, and it is hanging out uh, near Saturn. Mars looking reddish, Saturn yellowish, and blue star Spica. Uh, Also, uh, at least if you're living in the northern hemisphere, be sure to check out the so-called Summer Triangle by looking overhead in the early to mid-evening. You'll see three bright stars spread across the the sky, but all overhead. That's Vega and Deneb and Altair. You can also see the northern cross in Cygnus coming out from one of those three. All right, we move on to uh, This Week in Space History, 1962. That's like an even number of years ago.
0: Where were you in 62? That's what George Lucas said. Speaking of George Lucas.
4: Mariner 2. Mariner 2 was launched. The first successful Mm. flyby of another planet was Mm -hmm. launched 50 years ago this week. Very cool. And now we move on to random
0: space fact. So high fidelity called and they said, uh, keep practicing.
4: I know I gotta. I gotta. I just keep trying this singing thing, and I. <laughs> I know I shouldn't. So I apologize to everyone. We'll go back to wacky, zany, crazy next time. Viking lander. So we just had the selection of the the Insight mission that mm-hmm. will head to Mars and land in 2016, the first ever geophysical uh, focused lander. And, of course, we'll have a a seismometer as well as a heat probe. Uh, The only other seismometers on Mars, Viking Lander 1 had one, but it failed. It's about the only thing on the mission that didn't work. Viking Lander 2 had one, uh, and it basically was uh, a wind sensor because it wasn't coupled to the ground. So they, they actually were used it for wind measurements. They may have detected one Mars quake, but everything's kind of fuzzy. So, uh, so it'll be nice to have insight in a few years getting a, a seismometer up close and personal with the surface so we can probe the deep subsurface of Mars. We move on to the trivia contest. I asked you what... Is the mass of the plutonium dioxide that is on board Curiosity in its radioisotope
0: thermal electric generator. How do we do, Matt? I'm going to zip right through this. A lot of very good answers, very entertaining answers, which, of course, we don't have time to deliver. I will tell you that David Rosenbaum, who's right up the street here in Sierra Madre, he was chosen by Random.org for his correct answer of 4.8 kilograms of plutonium dioxide. So, David... Congratulations! You've won yourself a Fisher Space Pen. May I tell you what DJ Byrne said? Oh, please do. This is hilarious. Now, DJ, he's on the Curiosity team. He worked on the descent radar software for that uh, radar, which got Curiosity down to Mars. Well, as
4: long as he didn't load the plutonium.
0: No, and we should give him lots of pens and shirts and anything just for getting it down and safely. Plutonium and plutonium. He, uh, you don't know where the plutonium is, of course, right? Yes, it's yes, big, I That bulbous thing on the rear end of. Uh, on the rear end of curiosity, uh, he added, "This does this RTG make me look fat?" <laughs> <laughs> I like it. And Rennie you had me at bulbous rear end. <laughs> I'm sorry, I probably went too far in setting that up, didn't I? Craig Hutchinson points out that we still need to get the government, the government, to uh, allow for the creation of more plutonium dioxide, so we can have more of these RTGs and send stuff into deep space. Uh, sort of connected to that, though not really. Rennie Christopher, he had this long thing about uh, the use of plutonium, the, the ways that we more traditionally know how it's used. And he finished with the clear moral of the story, make rovers, not bombs. Wow.
4: Or make rovers with bombs.
0: <laughs> <coughs>
4: Ray guns aren't enough. No, no. You, you need a backup to ChemCam. Okay. <laughs> It's a a different kind of plutonium. Okay. We move on to the next uh, trivia contest. What was the first spacecraft to fly by Saturn? Go to planetary.org slash radio. Find out how to enter.
0: You have until Monday, September 3rd at 2 p.m. Pacific time. To get us the answer to this one, and you will win yourself. How about this? We'll take a one-week break from space pens. We'll give away the great bumper sticker that Roger Ween's left. My other vehicle zaps rocks on Mars with Mars and a... Nice little rendition of uh, Curiosity, and uh, a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Okay, Nice. Yeah. Cool. A prize package. Prize package. Planetary Radio prize package. Before we go, let me just mention that uh, we have this guest blog up from uh, Carl Sanchak, who is at Lockheed Martin. He's the acting director of innovation there. We said we'd help them get the word out about their Innovate the Future challenge. And uh, this is pretty cool. They've got up to $50,000 in prizes. You send them your idea, your concept, which can be adapted to a space or anything else. And uh, you might just uh, get it looked at and uh, win a prize. And who knows? Maybe you'll change the world, as our boss says. Cool. Uh, so it's on our website. But you can also just Google Lockheed Martin Innovate the Future Challenge. Uh, check the blog entry. It's, it, it is pretty cool. We're done.
4: All right, everybody. Go out there, look up the night sky, and think about lampshades. Thank you. Good night.
0: Now and then, I have absolutely no response. I can't think of anything. There's no party going on here. I don't have one on my head. But you could. He's Bruce Betts, the director of projects for the Planetary Society. He's here every week for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by the Kenneth T. and Eileen L. Norris Foundation and by the members of the Planetary Society. Clear skies you